0: Well, good morning. How are you guys doing today? My name is uh, Matthew Colomia. I get to serve here as one of the pastors with uh, primarily our middle school through our young adults here at Living Truth. And man, it uh, is—it's one thing I'm learning more and more. The topic of time. Uh, I've seen, uh, particularly because I've enjoyed working with youth uh, through small groups, through being a leader, through uh, an intern, through different ways, uh, about a decade, I- I've seen how quickly time passes. And as a kid, as a junior high or a high school student, I didn't think time was going by that fast. I, I remember as a kid uh, learning, you know, do not let time go. Uh, enjoy being in the moment, enjoy the things that are coming up, and I tell that to each of our senior students as uh, the year is starting off, especially when it hits the fall, our seniors, we tell them, hey, do not let this year go by quick because sure enough, you're going to be out of here that quick. And we encourage them to, to leave a legacy, to, to make a mark, to uh, do what God has done for them and make a community centered on Jesus and have them play their part in that community. But it's one of those things that as I have grown up, I've realized that time goes by quick. I just celebrated four years here at Living Truth and it's been a joy to serve here. I've just celebrated uh, six months of marriage uh, just a week ago. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Uh, My wife is five months pregnant, which just is uh, very, yeah, crazy how that works. but it's one of those things that I go, man, time has gone by quick. Last uh, night, we, we've had a long weekend, I'll be honest. Uh, Friday, uh, early afternoon, we had a wedding for my wife's cousin. We had a great time. The family was all there enjoying our time together, but that party was just so much fun, but I was also like, man, I knew I had so much going on the rest of this weekend because last uh, yesterday we had the men's conference here, which was a great time hearing Pastor Jeremy and Pastor John share God's word. We had so many testimonies and just seeing everybody enjoy Chick-fil-A and having all the kids out in the courtyard just playing games was such a good time. And like anybody else, uh, I was like, man, there's other things we could get done. And My wife, uh, I love her because she is so gracious to me. Um, We also scheduled, hey, let's paint our our baby's nursery too. On the same weekend as a wedding and a men's conference and me teaching on Sunday morning. And uh, I I quickly realized, man, I am not perfect. I realized when I was younger, my dad would always talk about naps, and maybe some of the fathers in here, you guys have this special gifting that you can fall asleep in either the recliner or the chair, eyes closed, hand on remote, and as a, as a kid, you could be like, you're asleep. And the dad would somehow miraculously wake up and tell, I am not asleep, I've been watching this movie all the time. And you're like, how does this happen? But I quickly realized my dad saying, man, naps are good. And as a kid, I was like, no, no, no. I would fall asleep, like, trying to climb out the room. And then I would fall asleep, and I loved naps so much. But when I got older, I didn't like naps. Uh, when I was in high school and junior high, I was like, man, naps are the worst thing ever. Like, I want to go do, I want to go do things. And then literally yesterday, after the men's conference, I was like, man, the only thing I want is a nap. <laughs> And yet we were painting the nursery <laughs> and it was amazing. Uh, I have amazing, awesome in-laws and parents and uh, even just not uh, parents of in-laws, but, but the sisters, um, Shane, my brother-in-law, amazing, just came in and we got the room painted really quickly and I was nervous because there's times where uh, I love attention to detail. And so like I'm over there like trying to, to, to paint right above the, the molding at the bottom. And I'm trying to be like all nice and clean. And who's so my, my father in law is like, Matt, no, 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 You're, you got to paint over those things. Just go quick. And I'm like, no. And I'm like hurting my knees, my back. Everybody knows painting. You're always hurting your body doing that. And then this is the worst. I, I was telling Pastor John, I haven't told anybody this, so I'll tell you guys. I, I was painting the, the, the bottom and I'm, I'm getting real close and I slip a little bit and my head goes straight onto the wall. And I was so scared because I actually thought I was gonna have a blue paint, a blue marking, even with showering and using shampoo and conditioner, this blue spot on the top of my head. And I was so worried to preach, look down at the text and all you see is just a blue spot right here. (laughs) But with time and circumstances, there's things that we always worry about. I worried about a blue head. Um, But I look at my life and I go, man, there's so many things that through time, through circumstances, I, I, I've, I've kind of complained. And yesterday, even yesterday, I was, my gracious and, and loving wife kind of just shows me more and more of, man, there's areas in my life where I could be transformed more into the image of God. And I need to understand his love and his grace and mercy more. I've, none of you, like me, complain at times. And man, I wanted that nap, I'll be honest. <laughs> But then I realized as quickly as my wife said, Matt, look at all the good things God's given us. I had to take a step back. And it was in that taking a step back that I realized, man, what a gift it is to have my wife. What a gift it is that we're able to rent this house that we're in. What a gift it is that we have a child on the way. What a gift it is that we're able to have a nursery and to even have paint to paint that nursery. What a gift it is to have a job that I love. I, I told uh, first, uh, first Service, I was like, man, I don't get it. I get paid to read God's word and hang out with students and point them to Jesus. You pay me to have fun in life. Now, I'm not saying, please, I, I, I want to continually do my job, but man, what a joy that is. What a gift it is. What is a gift that I get to come here on Sunday and hear this congregation lift their voices to praise our Lord and Savior? What a gift it is that I even have breath in my lungs to do that. Now, there's times where I look and I go, man, the, the, the situations, man. I, I bought paint and primer like two different times, and they were like, we're going to have to paint this room four times. And I was like, man, that... That's a lot of money. And then I realized you could actually buy paint that has primer mixed into it that you only have to paint a wall once. Thank you, Jesus, how good you are. But it's one of those things where I had to drive back to Home Depot, buy the more expensive paint to do that. And I could grumble on the circumstances. Now there are circumstances in my life where I could look at that one and go, man, that was a minor one. There's circumstances in my life where I go, man, those were major. Circumstances with even grandparents' health where you go, man, what are we going to do? Circumstances with my own father's life. What are we going to do? What hospital are we going to? Is he going to make it? What are, what are we needing to do? What decisions do we need to make? Talk about gifts. I have been graciously gifted people around my life throughout my life, that treasure, Jesus. And that gift of other believers, when my eyes, I'll be honest, have not always been focused on the Lord, and I put my eyes on circumstances, eyes on situations that I go, what is going on? Those friends, those brothers and sisters in Christ, helped me put my eyes back on the Lord. And we're going to see in the text that when the people of God have to deal with major circumstances in their life, they need to unite in trusting in the one who has been ever present with them. And we've been going through Exodus, and in this section of Exodus, it describes an incident that arises that when Israel was journeying through as they have left Egypt and they're going to Mount Sinai. And there's a challenge in this part of the journey that that they're getting into a hostile environment that lacks accessible supplies. And we actually see again that the Israelites' dependence on God is being tested. And in these challenging situations, the people need to lean on God and know that he is always with them and that they can trust in them And put their faith in him. And through these incidences, God continually trained them, the Israelites, to prepare them for their future settlement in Canaan. Let's pray before we get into the text. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for today. We thank you that we get to come here and worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, we rejoice as we look back at what marvelous miracles and how faithful you are, knowing the promises that lie in front of us. Lord, we look forward to those, but we are thankful for you. The one that we know always keeps his promises. The one that is the provider. The one that loves us deeply, that cares for us, even knowing our faults and failures, yet you love us even more. So, Lord, as we look at your text, let us never look more to our circumstances than actually looking to you. And, Lord, let this church, let us as believers lock arms as we keep you at the center of our our friendships, our relationships, as we help others experience, know, and treasure you more and more. So, Lord, we give you all honor and praise and glory. And it's to you, all glory deserves. In your name we pray. Amen. So when the believers of God must handle difficult experiences, this is kind of the big idea, in life, we need to come together in faith to the one who is always constantly with us. Let's look at the text. Exodus 17, verse 1. Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, and in the sight of the elders of Israel. And verse 7 says, And he called the name of the place Massah and Merab because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, So there is the Lord among us or not. Now, as believers, we need to continually put our trust in the one who is always present, whether our circumstances are light or heavy. And as we read in verse one, it says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rahab, or Raphid. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now, this region lies between the desert of Sin and the desert of Sinai. And the name would appear to uh, designate a wide area rather than a particular location. And this actually explains why Moses gives a specific name to where the water appears. This actually causes me to think back to the situation at Rephidim would cause uh, us to look back again to chapter 15, verse 23, at the events of Marah, where it says, As they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Now we have to think, again, they were in the wilderness and did not have water. Now this was with a purpose, and this was for their sanctification, what I call ongoing spiritual transformation, being perfected more into the image of God. And God had led them out of a place of provision and into a place where they had nothing to drink. When uh, I, I moved out to Corona, I realized this place gets really hot. <laughs> um, even now we're in uh, like September and it's like 90 degrees still. And I'm like, do we have seasons here? I still ask that question, but if, if you live in Corona or if you guys have come here, you know that there are two ways to get in and out of Corona, the 15 or the 91. That's it. And so when I go up the 15, uh, when I go on trips, I typically stop at a place outside of Baker's or uh, Barstow, up past Barstow called Peggy Sue's. Peggy Sue's is one of my favorite places to go to. It's like this uh, retro 50s diner. I always think of Fonzie, the like, hey, when you come in. Um, I was not born, so I don't know if exactly Fonzie was in the 50s. But that's where my mind goes to. Um, you may have seen Peggy Sue's. They have like these, I think they call them dinosaurs, but they kind of look like just pieces of metal put together. But it looks cool for little kids. What I love about the Peggy Sue's is, as, as you enter... You walk in and they have the old jukebox and all these things. And then you walk to the right. And as you walk to the right, you have that like 50s diner experience. Like I'm talking about the counter that's over here where they're making the food and they have the little window. And then you can sit at the little round circles where you like sit down. But you also feel like this should be soft, but it feels like just straight hard plastic And then across from that, I feel like it's literally like 12 inches separation from these seats to this seat. And these are the booths. But the booths look like you're like, okay, I could sit on that. But then the the seats are like straight plastic. Like it's like going to grandma's house and they have the plastic over the furniture. (laughs) That type of plastic. And and you could walk past that part of the diner into the rooms. And they have, I think, three or four different rooms. And all the rooms have different uh, movie paraphernalia, and it's all these photos or props and all these different things. They have an Elvis statue just chilling in the corner of one of the rooms, very interesting. But I love it because uh, simply, it is a, a great place to stop and to rest and to get a nice burger. Uh, they have the classic milkshakes. They have the Coke with like the actual grenadine cherry in there, really good, I love it. Um, they also have on the left side, as you enter, they have uh, all the classic I Love Lucy, the, the Coca-Cola products. They have candy from, I don't know, every decade that candy has possibly existed. It's a good place, I view, to get out and rest and stretch your legs and relax a little bit as you're driving to and from. And it's funny to me because I I met the owner one time and they were talking about how uh, they grew up in the depression and how every meal on the menu has one meat, one vegetable, and some form of potatoes. And I was was talking to her, I was just kind of relaxed. Every time I stopped in there, man, I'm like, ah. Get a good old milkshake, cheeseburger, French fries. You're like, yes. Coleslaw too. Ooh, come on now. And all these different things. And man, I I just remember like you you step outside and you stretch your legs. And some of you guys like when you get that really good stretch, where like your whole body like stiffen up and you're like, oh, there we go. All the muscles are tight and then you're loose and you're just feeling so comfortable after you've been sitting in a car for so long, you get that fresh air in your lungs after you've been sitting in AC, it's just refreshing. It's funny, I was thinking about that when I was looking at this text because refendum actually means resting place. And unlike a fun, enjoying, clean, delicious place where you could get a hamburger and a malt or a milkshake, this place is majorly disappointing. And we see how they react in the next verse. Verse 2 and 3 says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? See, in this situation, Israel knew what they should have done. Israel knew that they should have, have come together as one. They should have prayed for God to provide and then waited for God to provide and give them direction on what to do next. Yet, in their human nature, they did what none of us would have done, and they started complaining. They started crying out. It is hot it is dry. There is no water. This feels like corona. There is not the type of day that I simply as a big boy would enjoy being out in the desert. They must have been afraid of dehydration. And we could see that in their response. And when we have seen God provide repeatedly Over and over and over and over again in our lives, do we not look back and remember the one that is sovereign over all things and that deeply loves us? Or do we tend to focus in on our problems and complain about what is going on? We see which option Israel chooses. They reply, give us water to drink. The Israelites were quick to blame Moses for their absence of water. Again, they uh, accuse and blame Moses of leading them out of Egypt in order to bring about their death. We see that in verse three as it says, and we could put in Israel said, why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. This is the fourth time we actually see in Exodus they're guilty of grumbling. We see it in chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16. Now, I was in Boy Scouts, and I remember multiple times where uh, we would go on campouts, and the one campout that I was just not a fan of was Hiking go figure. But it's one of the things that I was always told, hey, whatever you need, you put on your backpack and you go. And I was like, man, I love to drink water. That means I need so much water in my backpack plus my sleeping bag, plus my ground cloth, plus a blanket, plus a pillow, plus a little stove, plus my utensils. And I start thinking of all these things. And I'm like, my backpack is going to be this, like wide, this tall, and it's going to hit the floor. And I think to myself, man, I I don't like being thirsty. When I was, my dad jokes about it. I used to play t-ball. And like I went into, I think it's single A, double A, triple A. I don't know the order. I don't remember. But there was one time I was playing catcher. Now I told my dad, man, I'm good. I don't need any. I got my water. I drank my water already today. And about the fourth or fifth inning, I'm behind the plate. You already know where this cover is going. I'm sitting there in my catcher's like stance position. I don't remember what it's called. But we were catching and I was caught the ball. And I just stayed there. And even the umpire was like, hey, like, you, you could throw it back. And I just stayed in there. And they came over, and they were like, hey, like, let's go. And I just took off the catcher's, uh, like, thingy. The, I don't know what it's called anymore. But you know what I'm talking about? And my face was bright red. I mean, cherry, tomato, red velvet car type red face. I get into the catcher or the the dugout and man, I needed water. I was thirsty. I was dehydrated. We get to that place in life where all we can think about is what is in front of us. And we see the results of that type of attitude and that type of thinking with the Israelites as the text says the people quarreled with Moses. Now the word quarreled in Hebrew means rib, which means to to chide or to speak out in displease. It's in this verse that we're seeing that they're actually used to uh, accuse Moses of trying to kill them. And this suggests that Moses or Israel thought Moses had actually intentionally sought to harm them. And so they must have him cause to bear all the responsibility of what they're going into. And we see in verse four that Moses obviously thought that his life was in danger because of how they were treating him and talking to him. And I think it causes me to think, man, the hostility that was going on in this situation had to be high. But yet when we look at verse two, it says, and Moses said to him, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? See, Moses knew that even though the Israelites were coming after him, He knew that they were upset with God. As revealed earlier in chapter 16, verse 4, God has brought the Israelites into the desert to test their obedience to him. And while it is appropriate for God to test Israel's obedience, it is clearly inappropriate for them to test God's faithfulness. By testing the Lord, the Israelites not only imply that he is less than perfect, but they also set themselves as judges who are in a way superior to God. And only God as the true superior judge over all people, over all things, can truly test us. Because of that, Israel was not only rejecting Moses as God's appointed authority figure, but they were rebelling against the one that put Moses in that position. And see, our rebellion shows that we are not satisfied with God and that we are disappointed in him. It wasn't Moses that they were mad at, but God who in his sovereign power rules over all things. If not to to see our troubles and to know our troubles, it's not wrong to see those things to see them, to know them. But what are we doing with our troubles? We're called to go to God with them in prayer. The Bible actually encourages us to be honest with him in our troubles, to be honest with him in our difficulties, to be honest with him in our doubts. And guess what? He can handle those. He doesn't think, man, that he can't handle them. And also, don't think that he doesn't want to hear them. But in doing so, we need to trust in his perfect will and trust in his word. But how do we react, though, when the storms of life come? How do we react when we're in the desert and we're not without water? What do we do when things don't go our way? whatever the reason for our displeasure, it really shows that we are not satisfied with what God has given us. And the Bible actually talks of, to us to, 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 to not grumble as some of them did in 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Yeah, we see the Israelites make two statements that Moses, to Moses that shows a different form of complaint. First, they say in verse two, give us water to drink. Now, the issue here is that they're demanding God's provision. It is them demanding that they have it. They're not asking. They're not waiting. They're telling God what he must do and how and when he must do it. And I think at times we insist on having things done our way and on our time. Isn't it so easy to complain when we don't get what we want when we want it. See, I, I look at my own life and uh, my family and, and close friends know that I am very OCD. I, I, before I, uh, I was talking, one of our old roommates, Brad, was in here. We would joke about when you walk in or by my room, it looks like a hotel room. All the remotes lined up right next to each other, straight towards the TV. Everything on the desk, all the pens were in the exact little spot that they need to. All the books were lined up and the face of the books lined up perfectly towards each other. The cords to all my computer things were in their little cord holder and they were strapped to the desk so they wouldn't be hanging loosely anywhere. (laughs) Amen. This is the bad one. Even in my closet, I have all my college shirts here Buy like my dress shirts, then my flannels, then my pants, then my regular t-shirts, and between every hanger is literally one f- finger width apart. You could go in. My wife knows that's how I do it. Everybody jokes about it, but that's who I am. <laughs> she is an amazing, wife. Um, but one of the things that that I actually thought about. Because I've been invited into many homes and I, I've been graciously loved on by this community and so many others. Even walking into my own family member's house, the one thing I always hear was, sorry for the mess. And I, I always responded, I don't know why, I literally thought about this today up in the youth room at seven o'clock in the morning. I understood why, but I always said, oh, it's no problem, that means someone lives here. But it caused me to think in my own life, as my house, my room, my desk, my office, even up in the youth room, it's one of the cleanest youth rooms you'll ever walk in. There is no bags of sugar or candy or, or chips or soda on the ground. All the games are put together. All the chairs are lined up nice and neat, all those things. But it caused me to think, it doesn't look that I live here. It caused me to think, man, as everything's lined up, as everything looks so immaculately clean. I mean, even if there's like a little dog hair, we have a little puppy and that thing. My wife loves this dog. I love her kind of most of the time. Um, Man, she's like in the terrible two time right now. It's it's crazy. But she is a blessing. She is a gift. Uh, But even like sweeping up dog hair, I feel like I'm doing that all the time. But man, when I walk into the house and I hear, man, sorry for the mess, I always think now, It's okay, people live here. causes me to think, man, how many things do I need to have my way, done the way I like it, done in the time frame that I like it, and I have to say, it doesn't need to be that way. And we see, as God has provided, over and over again, I go, man, how amazing is it that I have a room to sleep in, that I have a wife that loves me in my OCD craziness, that I don't need to have everything lined up specifically because how great is it a gift that I have even things to line up? And if one thing is off, one remote is slightly to the right, am I gonna have that circumstance change my outlook on the day, change my outlook on even, man, how I'm viewing God in that moment? that going to have changed my whole afternoon? Or am I going to remember that God has provided? I mean, Israel, not too long before this, turned the bitter water. They had God see that the bitter water turned sweet. Manna come down from heaven. I look and I go, how quickly we are to forget the ways that God has provided for us in the past. And we see in verse 3, it says, why do you bring us out of, of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Once again, how quickly are we to forget how God has protected us too? Think about it. How quickly do we forget or even deny that God is protecting his children? I think sometimes we tend to think the worst. They had thought that God had abandoned them and that to the extent even that they were going to die, crying out, God, where are you? And we can easily choose to grumble and complain in what God is doing in our lives and say that it is not good to us or even harmful to us, or we can remember his authority, and we can remember that he is sovereign over all things, and we can remember that we are his children, that he protects and loves us. Did Israel forget their deliverance from Pharaoh and from the Red Sea? Did they forget that God had shown his protection and his presence to them by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? Did they forget about the provision of what had come down from heaven? I was thinking, how many times was God having to prove his protection and presence to them? But then even to myself, how many times does God have to prove his protection and presence to me? When we are in need, we forget what God has done for us. And I think at times... We may look at our circumstances and judge God based on our circumstances instead of looking at God and evaluating our experiences from his point of view. I mentioned earlier that I, uh, I've been in youth ministry for a while now. I was a small group leader. I, I was an intern. I was a director. And, and now I oversee our youth as a pastor. And previously at another church uh, I, I, I've always had a heart for the youth. I think it's such an integral age for them as so many voices are speaking into them of who they are or what they should be or how they should look or how they should think or what they need to say. And I know I say simply, hey, if you want any of those answers, look here. Don't look to the world, look to here. And uh, They hired a guy to be the youth pastor as I was the director there. And and in that season, a lot of people were going, Man, Matt, you you should have had that job. You should have had that job. And I go, It's all good. If if the Lord wants it to happen, it's going to happen. I had a friend take me to lunch, a little uh, taco place. And I love this place. But as we went there, uh, he was asking me, Hey, how are you doing? What is going on? What are you thinking? I'm like, man, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm okay. Like just thinking what God has next for me. And I remember the next question he asked me, just hit me right in the face. He asked me, How, what is your view of God right now? And I looked at him and I'll always remember this. I said, I'll never let the church dictate my view of God, but I'll always let God dictate my view of the church. Now I love This congregation, we're not perfect though. We make mistakes. I'm not going to let maybe some issues that we have, issues that you have, cause me to look at God differently. But I will always have God dictate how I view my brothers and sisters in Christ. I will remember what he has done. I don't do it perfectly, but I try to as best of my ability to view each and every brother and sister in Christ every person, the way God has viewed me. I think the real question is not, what do we think about God? But what does God think about us? And we should look back on all the ways that God has met our needs for food, for housing, for school, for work, for relationships, for friendships, for painting the room in a nursery. We should look back and see his love that is unconditional and that never runs out. And if we choose to focus on him and remember who he is and remember what he has done, I think we will be able to trust more in him without having to grumble and complain more and more. But we actually see the effects of that grumbling and complaining to Moses in verse four when it says, "'So Moses cried to the Lord, "'What shall I do with this this people?' They are almost ready to stone me. See, we see the frustration by the Israelites causes Moses to look to God for help as he did previously at Marah, when it says in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 23, Morah, they could not drink the water of Morah because it was bitter. And just like when Israel said in Exodus sixteen three, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when he sat by the meat post and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See, we got to remember that God was testing them. Now at Meribeth, God again was wanting to see if they would trust him to provide living water. And this is part of their ongoing spiritual transformation. It is part of their sanctification journey. This is part of them trusting in the sovereign, all powerful, all loving, all present, all caring, all giving, all gracious and merciful and holy God that we serve. But they were tired of being tested. And as they asked these questions, they did not look back to God's provision that happened before. So they cha- challenged God and his covenant and they took it to Moses. Now Moses did what was frequently he should have done as a leader and what he did, he called out to the Lord for help, just like at Marah with the bitter water and the countless other times. Yet as Moses was God's representative, the people of Israel were taking out their judgment, their grievances and their accusations on him when really they were wanting to take it out on God and to God. See, they were essentially making a case against both God and Moses for leading them into the wilderness to die in their eyes. One Old Testament scholar, Gerard von Rod, concluded that the names of Massah and Meribah imply the legal cases were investigated, decided by trial there. They were judging God and in what they could do. Judge Moses for leading them into the wilderness to die, and if they were going to die, Moses was going to be the first to go. I think that's why Moses goes on to say, they were almost ready to stone me. Stoning was the, the coven, uh, conventional way to carry out the death penalty. So, in Moses' fear, he calls out to the Lord. And this shows the attitude of the people. They wanted to go, hold God responsible. They were not happy with the way things were going in their life and instead of trusting him, knowing his plans were good and gracious, they wanted to judge him for how they thought their life was going wrong. But do we, when things aren't going our way and the circumstances of our life don't meet our expe- expectations, quickly turn to God? Or do they turn away from him and blame him and demand a form of explanation? I think we need to check our motives for an explanation. Are we seeking him from a genuine desire to know God? Or are we raising objections that are based on a refusal to believe his character, his promises, and ultimately him? are we being honest seekers of the Lord? We we can look at how the Lord helps Moses in seeking help. In verse 5 and 6, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now the Lord doesn't take a side between Moses and the people, but he directly sends relief here. The Lord instructs Moses to take some of the elders with him. And see, in ancient times, the assembly of the elders was to pass judgment on quarreled matters. So as they go ahead of the people of Israel, the Lord says to bring the staff that was given to Moses back at the burning bush to prove of God's presence. And it represented God's power and authority as judge. Now, as we look at the verse, the scripture does not say exactly and tell us what, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb actually looks like. Some commentators say that God may have appeared again in the cloud of glory. Others say that he may not have actually been visible at all. The New Testament does say, though, and makes a connection between the rock and God in the person of his son, the pre-incarnate Christ. However he appeared, God was standing there on the rock. So as Moses was told to strike on the rock as he had struck the Nile. Striking the Nile was in the first plague, however, mentioned an interruption of the nation's water supply. Whereas here in this, the striking was a signal of the commandment of the flowing of waters. And as we look, we see that it is God's presence in verse 6 that is actually the prerequisite for receiving the gift of water. Moses must strike the rock, but it is the Lord's interventions is that what makes the miracle work. And the scripture instinctively tells that it is the elders witness of this event in verse 6 so that they can verify the legitimacy of the miracle. See, the name Horab means dry, desolate, which is fitting for this place and a description of a desert location. Now, the name also suggests that this is a place that is highly unsuitable to find water. And it makes this divine provision even more astonishing that water comes out of here. With Moses striking the rock, some scholars suggest, and it says, the sudden appearance of water may be explained due to a natural, natural phenomenon. Moses used the staff to crack the crust of soft, porous limestone to release water from the saturated rock. However, given the arid location, the sudden appearance of water stored in limestone seems most unlikely. This event is yet another example of God's power to control natural environment. And as this occurs, we see in verse 7, it say, And he called the name of the place Massah and Merab because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, these two names mean tested and quarrel. And as we look back, these two verbs are actually used in both verse 2 and then repeated in verse 7. And it literally helps us understand the ideas of quarreling and testing that is seen throughout this whole incident. And the final question we see in verse seven, is the Lord among us or not? Takes an added significance when viewed in the light of the whole book of Exodus, which describes how the Lord comes to provide, protect, and be with his people. And we can see as we close out in verse seven, or 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually makes and says that the rock was Christ. Now we can look at the rock as a type of foreshadowing of Christ. Moses struck the rock instead of striking the people, and the water flowed to save the people. Jesus, the rock, was struck for our salvation. Instead of striking us, God struck the sun. And Moses is told not to strike the rock again. Later on, the second time, Moses is told to speak to the rock. And like the rock, Jesus was struck only one time. After that, he was spoken to. And like the rock, when he was struck, water flowed from his side, like it says in John nineteen thirty four. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once, there came out blood and water. He died the death that we deserve to die. And now believing in Jesus, we drink from the water of life for eternal life. Jesus even says in his own words in John 7, verses 37 and 38, on the last day of the feast, that actually being the Feast of Tabernacles that we celebrate tomorrow, crazy how this works, that God, or the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus gave us the water we desperately needed and that water can only come through striking one time. And we do not strike the rock after that. Think back to Isaiah fifty three, verses four through six it says, Surely we have borne our griefs and carried out sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was injured. He was struck. He was stabbed. He was crushed for our iniquity. Let us remember that God is with his people and that God provides for his people. Let us trust him And not grumble and worry. More importantly, let us trust in him in our deepest needs. Let us trust in the one who lived the life that we could not live. He passed the test that we could not test. Let's trust in the one who was struck for our salvation. He took our judgment that we may know the joy of his salvation let us trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you passed the test that we could not pass. Lord, you were mocked and beaten. You were crushed for our iniquities. And Lord, through faith, we thank you so much. Help us seek to know you more Help us to trust in you, Lord. Let us not turn to grumbling or worry, but let us fall on our knees and pray. Pray for direction, knowing that you are the great provider, knowing that you protect us, knowing that you love us. Lord, help us be a community that locks arms with one another as we put our trust in the one who is perfect. Help us seek to know you, to know the joy of your salvation more and more. And Lord, help us be ambassadors as we want to promote you, to glorify you, to have other people hear of your good name, hear of your good works, see you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior of their own life. For we give all things to you, knowing you, Help us love you more, our Heavenly Father. We ask these things in your name.